And again, if you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. I'll be reading Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 20. Philippians 3, 17 to 20. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible, instructive, and merciful word to our hearts and souls. And so, Father, to that end, I beg of you that none of us has a dull hearing this morning of your word, but that by your spirit and every function of our biological beings and brains would be awake to hear and to adore, to revel in your salvation through your son, Jesus. So to that end, help me unfold this morning the clarity of scripture on your preservation of the saints and our persevering in faith to the end. Amen and amen. So this is week three on the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And if we take the Bible seriously and read it carefully, it becomes clear that one of the ways God causes his people to persevere in faith and be saved is by warning us not to shipwreck our faith. The New Testament says to Christians throughout, press on. Keep going. Press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Because if, if you don't press on and you as a church-going person turn away from Christ, you will be destroyed. God graciously, mercifully warns us some will drift in the church. Some will drift down the river of the world and ultimately be lost. And the reason he does that for his saints is precisely in order that our assurance of our salvation 
that we will not drift and be lost, become strong. Now you're thinking, really? Okay, that's what I'm going to try to help you with. So I want you to turn again to Hebrews. We're going to be spending our time pondering Hebrews chapter 5. I'm going to read verse 11 of chapter 5 through verse 12 of chapter 6. And of course our concentration will be on verses 4 to 6. You cannot preach on the perseverance of the saints without dealing with this text. And so, as we do, here's the Holy Spirit through the New Testament authors does not say to us, you ought to practice obedience of faith. But whether you do or don't, even if you quit Christianity altogether, you're still going to get to heaven. You'll still get the prize of the high calling of God. It's not how he speaks. But instead he says stuff like this. Hebrews 5, starting with verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you 
to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so this morning, the outline of the sermon is simple. We need to answer four questions about this warning in Hebrews 6 in order to understand it. Here are the four questions up front. First, what is the danger here in Hebrews 6? Is it eternal condemnation, lostness forever? Or is it something else? Second question. What brings this danger to pass for baptized church-going people? In other words, what must we do or, or not do so that the danger and the warning of Hebrews 6 does not happen to us? Third question, if this danger and this warning actually happens to a person, was he or she actually born again, justified, adopted into the family of God, sealed by the Holy Spirit? And the fourth question, should we who or walking with Jesus and have assurance of our salvation and our hope. And thus, we know the Bible that says, if I belong to Him, I cannot be lost, which is true. Should we apply this passage to ourselves or just skip over it? All right, there's the four questions. Let's go to the first. What is the real threat? What's the real danger that's laid out here in Hebrews 6? The answer is, the danger is real lostness and eternal final condemnation. He is not talking about mere temporal disciplining here, as he will later in this book. And I say this for three reasons. First, in the immediate context, those two pieces of farmland in verses 7 to 8, suggest God's ultimate curse is in view. In verse 7, there's the fruitful land and it receives the blessing from God. In verse 8, the unfruitful land ends up being burned. And these lands clearly are a metaphor for the soils of people's hearts. The fruitless field is called worthless. Its end is burning. And, and that's the language of final condemnation. Secondly, just flip over to chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 35, where again, and we have seen over the last couple of weeks here, the author urges them again, do not throw away your salvation. Don't throw away your assurance of hope, your faith. Don't throw it away. And then he backs it up with another warning, starting in verse 38. 
But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So what's at stake in this shrinking back is destruction. The ordinary word in the New Testament for final condemnation, apoleon. And the opposite of this destruction is in verse 39, keeping their souls. And then in chapter 12, verse 14, Hebrews. Strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What's at stake? in Hebrews, is not seeing the Lord, which means exclusion from His presence in the resurrection, in eternity, salvifically, final separation. So that's the answer to the first question. What's the threat here? Condemnation not being saved. That's the threat. Second question. What brings this to pass in chapter 6? How does that happen to if it happens to any of his readers in the Hebrews church? In chapter 6, verse 6, he speaks of falling away. And if they fall away, he says they get beyond the ability to repent. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. So, what's happening here? Well, the whole context here, from chapter 5, verse 11, to chapter 6, verse 12, tells us that what's happening is more than a, a simple change of mind intellectually. I don't believe in Jesus anymore more. That ultimately happens. I mean, if you ever pay attention to what's going on in evangelical American church, you see it happening more than you would have dreamed of in the last year. There's a lot of stuff that happened before that, which is the context here. What is involved here is a life that is persistently Fruitless. That's the point of the fruitless field in verse 8. What brings the curse down in this text is that 
He's referring to the possibility of persons like a field who, it rained. And, okay, that's, you understand, if it doesn't rain on your farmland for most of human history, you starve. You're not going to have crops, but you got rain and rain and rain of the Word of God and the fellowship of the saints and the Holy Spirit who's working in the midst of it. And it just rains and year after year, nothing is growing. No fruit. No vegetables. That's the context. Or, or to use the words of chapter 12, verse 14, they have not pursued holiness and therefore they will not see the Lord. The issue of falling away is not in this context primarily doctrinal. It's practical. It's the problem that we saw over the last two weeks in chapter 5, verse 14, where dullness of hearing the word of God was just growing and just bored with it. Which, at the end, there, it says they were unwilling to practice the word. Unwilling to really believe and to trust it. And so their faculties we're growing, growing dull. And verse 14 says, they're not, there's no practice. They, they can't even discern anymore between right and wrong. It becomes very fuzzy to them. And the writer says, throughout, if you don't stop, drifting and neglecting your salvation and forsaking the assembling of yourselves together and encouraging one another as the day draws near, then you're going to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and fall away from the living God. Chapter 3. And so in our text, the issue at every point from chapter 5, verse 11 to chapter 6, verse 12 is the neglect of fruit bearing, the neglect of practical walking with Christ, holiness. That's the threat that's up front, not the abandonment of doctrinal orthodoxy. The falling away in verse 6 of chapter 6 is the point at which, he says here, the heart can become so calloused, hardened, and indifferent that it is beyond help anymore. True Christians don't take that reality lightly. The day will come for some when they may try and not be able to truly repent. 
because they're so hardened and so addicted to the world they can't find within themselves one iota of genuine affection anymore for the gospel. Listen to how the writer says this in chapter 12, verse 17. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, sure, I want to go to heaven. Or have the blessing of my father and all that stuff that Jacob got. Yeah, I want it now. He was rejected because he found no chance to reap. Though he sought it with tears. So it's a real threat. The way to get there as a church person is to go on being a fruitless farm, not bearing the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Which brings us to the third question Can this happen to persons who are truly? born again truly have been by God justified declared righteous sealed as Paul would say in Ephesians 1 by the Holy Spirit can that happen to any of them the answer is no it cannot now, why do I say that? There are many texts throughout the New Testament that demonstrate that reality. And one over the last couple of weeks, I brought up at least in the last couple of sermons, is, is very clear in Romans 8, whom he predestined, he called, whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified, he glorified. Every one of them. There are no dropouts. But let me just show you two texts from the book of Hebrews itself, from this writer as he teaches it very clearly, that once you belong to Christ, you always belong to Christ. First, chapter 3, verse 14. We're going to read it slowly and literally. We have become sharers of Christ. Have become gaginamen. Become. It is a perfect tense verb in the Greek. The perfect tense is a past tense that happened in the past. And it's got this emphasis of ongoing throughout that past up to the very present and continuing on. But he says, not you will become but you have become. Now read on. For we have become sharers of Christ if indeed we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So note, he, he does not say 
that you will become a partaker of Christ if you persevere to the end. And there's a huge difference. It says we have already become partakers of Christ. How will you know that's you? Because you will persevere to the end. You will hold fast your assurance, firm to the end. The point is that the persevering faith here does not cause or is not the means of you getting participation with Christ, salvation in Him. Uh-uh. It's the evidence that you have become sharers with Christ. I hope that makes sense. Perseverance is not the, the payment that you give in order to say, so that I can be saved, that I can share in Jesus Christ. It is the proof that you are in Christ. And to see the difference is crucial. One more. Hebrews 10, verse 14. The writer says, For by a single offering, it's Jesus' death on the cross, for by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Again, the tense of His verbs are crucial. For by a single offering, He has perfected perfect tense in the Greek. It has happened. It is done. And he makes it clear for all time. There's no more dying for it. It is done. What is done? His perfecting a people. Who are they? Present tense verb. Those who are being sanctified. In other words, Jesus he died, he perfected a group of people forever. He has done this in the past. It does not say that his death will perfect them if they get sanctified. It says he has perfected those who are being sanctified, set apart. Their walk. So, a person who drifts into sin, away from God, in the book of Hebrews, and neglects the pursuit of sanctification, falls away from the living God, is not a person who was once saved by the death of Jesus and then lost that salvation because, well, Verse 14 of chapter 10 says that that salvation of Jesus that he purchased on the cross is done once and for all time for that group of people. And as he said in John 6, everyone whom the Father gives me 
I will lose none of them. My sheep hear my voice. Don't go that way, sheep. They hear my voice. And our assurance, which can go up and down in the Christian life, It comes from watching the grace of God in our life. Continually pull a stupid sheep back with that hook. It's called repentance, sin, and oh, how I've shamed you. And he's there again. And your assurance should go up. Oh, what a savior. Oh, what a savior. I'm being sanctified. But if you go on for weeks and months and years and there's no sign that you're being sanctified, then you should, you should have your fear of what that might mean about you grow. But if you're saved, if he justified you, you know he brought you to himself, you can never be lost. He won't lose you. Which brings us to the fourth, final question then. If that's so, <laughs> should those of us who, right now, I feel, I, I, love, I feel, I really love Jesus. I'm never perfect. I'm walking with the Lord. and I, I see these signs in, in my life. My, my assurance is high. I, I really believe that I am one of God's elect. That, that my faith is genuine. I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Okay, here's the question. Should those persons, should we who are like that, pay attention to this text. Apply this text to our lives. Should we read Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 to 8 and take heed to it and let, and let it do its work in affecting us? The answer to the question is simply yes, absolutely. For two reasons here in the book of Hebrews. The first reason is the writer writes it to us church-going people. We put ourselves in their stead. It's not a letter written to the world, an evangelistic letter. It's a letter written to baptized Christians. And when he finishes this warning, verses 4 to 8, the very next thing he says in verse 9, look at it. Though we speak in this way. Okay, I, I, okay, I just, here, here's my interpretation of that. Yes, I know you're sobered. He's saying, yes, it's, it's sober. It's a sober warning. So though we speak in this way, yet... In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. That won't be you. That is things that belong to salvation. In other words, the writer says he has a strong confidence that his readers, whom he knows, that they're not going to make shipwreck of their faith, that they're not going to fall away from the living God. 
But they're going to persevere. That's what he says. But he knew that before he started writing the warning, didn't he? Or did it just come to him? Five verses earlier, he knew he's going to say that to them, and he writes the warning anyway. So you got, why does he do that? It seems to me to be simple, that the writer wants people, even people who are walking with the Lord and sure of, to have this warning because he wants their confidence that that ain't going to be me to rise. So he wants them whom he's sure of better things, things concerning salvation. He wants them to hear the warning and take heed to the warning. That's the first reason that we must take heed to the warning. The other reason we should take heed to this warning is because of the kind of description that he gives in verses 4 and 5 of the person who can fall away from the living God. He says that person can be enlightened, can have much truth, insight into the Bible, into the gospel. They, they can have tasted of the, of the heavenly gift and in some sense have been partakers of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church community. The very Holy Spirit at work in the life of this blessing God gave them of being in the community of Christ. And even experience to some kind of an extent, oh yeah, that's sin, I want to stop doing that. Stop doing that. This person could have tasted, he says, the goodness of the word of God, sat under the blessing maybe of parents who were Christians, raised that way. Oh, sat under the blessing of the preached word from their pastors in the church. Which the author clearly goes on to say, don't you remember your leaders back then? This person could have tasted the powers of the age to come. In other words, this person could be what Jesus says in Matthew 7 verse 22. One who could prophesy cast out demons and do mighty works in Jesus' name. All of that and yet Hear the dreadful words on Judgment Day from Jesus' own mouth. Depart from me. I never knew you. Not I used to know you, and now I don't anymore. Because, dear believer, let me tell you, you love Jesus, it's because he knew you. He knew you the biblical way. He knew you an intimate way. Only Abraham have I known. It's not a cognitive thing about God. It is a choosing thing. It is a life transforming and keeping thing. So those are just two reasons, though, why church-going people, all of us, should take heed when we read this warning and all the other warnings in the Bible and in the New Testament. 
But still, there's kind of like, okay, I got that. Just do the Bible. But there's still a kind of why. I mean, look, I have a strong assurance that my faith is real. And and Joe, you you have been clearly teaching on justification, on Romans 8, perseverance, called, justified, glorifying, no dropouts. And that's there, so we actually put our trust and confidence, and you got this, you got this holy relaxation in God concerning your eternal salvation as death is approaching. All that's true. So, Joe, if that's true, and we got a full assurance of our faith, then why should we take the warnings against falling away so seriously? The answer is simple. God's way to keep us from falling. Throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, His way of doing that with His real people is by constantly enticing us with His promises. That's what He does. And sobering us with His warning. The point of the innumerable promises throughout the Scripture and in the Gospel is to constantly awaken our desires for His glory. And the point of the warnings is to turn our desires away from the destructive, perishing glory Just hold that right there for a second. And now, again, where we started, Paul's admonition in Philippians 3. Hear it. Brothers, join in imitating me. And and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Why? Why? Because here's the reality in this world and in the church world. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. There's another road. But our citizenship, though we live in this world, is in heaven. And from it, the promises, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The point of the promises is to make our mouths water at the prospect of eternal happiness in God. The Savior that that we await, the one that was raised from the dead and as a human being sits at the right hand of God, will return. And that's what drives our lives as believers. 
And just the opposite of that is the point of the warnings is to make our hearts tremble at the prospect that I don't want that. And I'm evidencing it by the way I walk and live my life. I don't want, as the Hebrew writer said, to neglect so great a salvation. And so the warnings come as a blessing to all his people. Or the way Paul put it in Philippians 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling at what? Well, I'm convinced at what? That you never be the people that he warns about constantly. That's it? Don't want to be that? Oh, that's right. Turn me back again. I do. Look at your promises. Oh, thank you for leading me in song and prayer. As you open your Bible and you you watch the Lord working, again, your assurance rises. Yes, sin comes about again. And you all sin. We all sin. And constantly you're saying, just stop it. No more. Let's move. Yes, back in the gospel. Back in the gospel. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Or you just turn around. That's where you you, you sit, Christian. He who called you is faithful. He will bring it to pass. The reason that you are a believer is because of his miracle choosing causing you to believe and he has promised you'll make it to the end for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure the lo- here's the logic therefore work out your salvation with fear and trembling the warnings of the Bible support our assurance of salvation by making us aware of the real danger of careless spiritual drifting. And thus, again and again, they then send us back with vigilance to what we heard the coach of the Hebrews say last week. Consider Jesus. Looking to Jesus. Press on. Keep running toward the goal. Love and practice the word of God every day so that your faith grows, which produces the pursuit of holiness. Out which no one will see the Lord. And as you do, remember, it is God working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Because before the throne of God, you have a strong and a perfect plea. You have a great high priest who forever lives and pleads 
for you. Let's sing this. Oh, Holy Father, we thank you for such a great salvation. May you constantly turn our eyes back again and again to gaze at the beauty of your Son, the beauty of his cross where he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the pictures of the high priesthood throughout the Old Testament that pointed to you, our great high priest, who forever lives. And thus we know absolutely you will lose none of us. We thank you for making us farmlands that drink the rain and by your utter mercy and grace produce food and fruit to the glory of your name.